Good morning, Bentonville Church of Christ. This marks the second week of our digital exile, and I know that we're missing each other a lot. I want to say thank you to some of those who made videos this week to share with the church a few encouraging words, a few ideas about what they're doing at home. Thank you for sharing with everyone. And to all of those of you who are making calls and checking in through social media or writing letters to each other, God bless you for what you're doing to care for one another and to keep tabs with each other at a time like this. Now, this month we've been talking about how to be still and we never would have imagined six weeks ago that we would have the opportunity to do it that we're experiencing right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But here we are. And this month we've been learning more about how to do this. John introduced the importance of stillness to us at the beginning of the series. I talked about some reasons that we're afraid to be still, that we're afraid to miss out. Well, right now we're all missing out. And so without having the choice necessarily, uh, here we are. And what do we do with it? Uh, we've talked some about how to be still, how to choose a sturdy place to sit and do some breathing exercises to try to calm our body, to sit with our feet firmly planted on the floor and fold our hands and close our eyes and think about a scripture or a short prayer that we might recite on our breath, like, God who sees, have mercy on us. God who sees, give us sight. And then to wait and to see what God might do, what he might say, what observations come to our mind, to notice what we notice. And not to expect fireworks or life transformation in any one prayer time, but the slow, steady transformation that comes from quiet time with God over years like a river cutting through the countryside, through rock and through dirt, and slowly enlarging a riverbed. The Holy Spirit of God slowly carves out paths in our soul when we spend time with Him. And so today, as we finish this series about being still, we're going to talk about something so important, that sitting still with God has the potential to limit the power of evil, to limit the destructive power of evil in our lives. We know that God is a God who can put limits on things. By faith, we believe as Christians that God will not allow evil to exert its authority forever. Someday it will be called to account, whether it is the evil that is done by agents, like human agents, like the evil of wars that people choose to fight, or the evil of violence and theft that they do to each other, or of abuse, or of racism, or of bias of many kinds. But also God will limit the evil that does not seem to have agency, like infectious diseases, this current pandemic being a prime example. And there are other kinds of evils, other kinds of pain in the world that don't seem to be done by a person. They're just part of this natural order, part of our brokenness as people who get sick and die. I'm thinking of, of mental disorders that people might be born with or have because of an accident later in life. Uh, maybe the kind of extreme poverty that someone is born into that is so severe that there's no vision or no hope of redemption or how they could ever get out of it. There's certain things in this world that we simply do not know how to deal with. And sometimes it seems as if evil is going to eat our lunch. 
burn everything down, take and take and take until there is nothing left and we are gone. Sometimes we feel as if we have hit rock bottom. And today we're going to look at a Psalm 130 that talks about just this. But before we get there, I want to say a few things about the kind of God that we serve and what he is offering to us in hope that we might do about all of this. Our God is a God who is in control. Even when it doesn't look like he is in control, he has the power to limit evil. In fact, by faith we understand that God will not allow evil to run rampant forever. Someday he will call all of it to account. He shows us this in an interesting way in the opening page of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, we read about God gathering the waters together and separating out the dry land. Let me read it. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. Now, this seems pretty straightforward as a creative act. God's making uh, land and water and separating them and creating the water cycle and all the things necessary for the world to work. And yet, there is a theological implication that runs deep. These ancient people were afraid of the sea. It was chaotic, dark, murky, unfathomable. They thought there was monsters in there and all kinds of danger. And so there was some fear there, a threat that they were aware of. And when God puts boundaries on the seas, he puts up a no trespassing sign, none shall pass. It is a way of saying, I will limit the destructive power of this chaos so that it, it can't completely overwhelm you and flood you. We know this because later on, an author in Proverbs 8 would write just this about God. God gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command. Did you hear it? There's a theological implication that our God sets boundaries in order to leave some space for life to happen, for growth and transformation to happen, so that chaos and evil can't take everything right now. And by faith, we know that one day, God is renewing all things, restoring all things, setting everything to rights. And until that time, it can seem as if evil is winning the day. But this is just not all of the story. I want to read a, a psalm to you, just one verse from Psalm 37. This is verse 7. And for me, this has become one of the most important scriptures about sitting still in all of the Bible. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Do not fret when people carry out their wicked schemes. Sit still before the Lord. What this psalm is showing us is that we have an opportunity or at least an option. We have a choice even when we see evil in the world, that the, this evil that already exists doesn't have to own the day. We can see it, we can acknowledge it even, and then we have a choice whether to participate in furthering it. For instance, if I begin to fret and worry and be consumed with all of these different responses to the wicked person, evil is taking more from me than it already had. I have a choice in this. So today we're going to look at what God offers in sitting still and how we might be able to accept his gracious offer to limit the power of evil. 
There is so much wasted suffering in this world, avoidable suffering, and some of it we choose for ourselves, and some of it is imposed on us. We can't control it all, but by faith we'll do with God what we can. This week, we've learned uh, a lot of new information about our current pandemic. We've received new guidance. For instance, social distancing is dead. Yes, the new terminology for what we are all doing is physical distancing. This comes in from the World Health Organization, as well as youth ministers everywhere. (laughs) Youth ministers have this uncanny ability that they've developed, a special skill developed over many years of practice. Uh, to see a situation uh, like a couple of kids sitting over here and call out to them, hey, you two, leave room for the Holy Spirit over there. Yes, you two, I'm watching you right now. No, really, stop shaking hands at church. See, skills honed, ready to deploy for action. I think about another example, our opening night at Green Valley Bible Camp. Year after year, the first rule we would give the kids was no boys on the girls hill, no girls on the boys hill. Uh, we like to put it like this, at our camp, pada pa doesn't. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's the way we open camp every single year. Youth ministers have this ability to see with their students some boundaries are needed. Uh, just a little bit of uh, passion gone wrong or, or one moment's choice to throw a prank that really wasn't um, well thought out could be an opportunity for a lot more evil to get into the situation, for a lot of hurt and a lot of pain to begin burning down lives, ruining a week of camp or even the reputation of an entire Bible camp. And you see, what youth ministers are doing when they set these boundaries on uh, PDA at camp or what God is doing when he sets boundaries on the chaotic waters is trying to create space for a choice because we need a moment, a, a little bit longer to make the best choice we can. The longer we make the space between impulse and action, the better our hope of taking the right path. Here's a thought experiment about how this works with pain and suffering. Consider two people, both who are suffering a lot of pain in their body. The one person wakes up with pain in his arms and his legs and all over his body. But he gets up and he goes outside and he goes on a run and he comes home and he does some push-ups and he does some pull-ups and he showers and he gets ready for work and he goes about his day. The other person is riddled with pain in all the same places in his body, and yet he can't make himself get out of bed. He doesn't want to eat food. Coffee isn't appealing anymore. He can't make himself go to work. On the surface, we might make a judgment about these two people. The one is motivated and a go-getter. He's a self-made man. The other one is lazy. He's sleeping in. He ought to get after it more until maybe we learn some more information. The one is sore in his whole body because he's been working out hard trying to get in shape and his muscles are rebuilding. The other one is sore in his whole body because he's living with life crippling inflammation from some kind of disease. Oh, suddenly this changes everything we might think about them, doesn't it? This little thought experiment uh, can show us that pain and suffering are not equal to each other. They are not the same thing. 
there's a space between these two impulses. My body hurts, and then what does this mean? In which we have a choice. Let's dive into this a little bit. Uh, pain is a signal in our body that something is wrong. We all can think of a lot of examples of this. An illness, an injury of some kind, physical hunger, or even emotional pain from some relationship that has gone wrong. Uh, a broken bone, a pulled muscle, a kitchen knife that slips and slices our hand, labor and delivery, inflammation in the body, headaches and heartaches, breakup, the loss of a parent or the loss of a child. All of these create incredible physical and emotional pains inside of us. And pain is going to happen. There's simply no avoiding this. We can't escape being hurt in life. Eugene Peterson, who I'm deeply indebted to in writing this sermon from a book that he wrote that has been important to me, once wrote, to be human is to be in trouble. Now, maybe we can put this in the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, that is not all Jesus said on the subject. But for right now, let's think about that part of what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble. We live with this myth. Maybe it's an American myth. Maybe it's the myth of the wealthy world. I don't know its origin, but we seem to live with this myth that in this world, you should not have trouble. Things should go relatively easy. Wholeness and length of days should come to everybody. But we know that this isn't true by our faith in God and our hope in God, we are aware that our own master suffered in this world. Jesus was betrayed and crucified. And he said, if they do this to the master, they'll treat the servants the same way too. In this world, you will have trouble. So our faith informs us. And even our reason, our, our logical minds tell us that everything doesn't come easy in life. Consider the story you may have heard of a student who shows up at university for the first time just thinking he should get by easy. He gets an F on his paper. He goes to the professor and he says, I don't think this is fair. The professor says, well, you got the grade you deserve. He says, can't you curve my grade? So the professor takes the paper, he scribbles something down on top of and over the red F that was on the paper, hands it back to the student who looks at it and sees a red cursive F. <laughs> No, you're not going to get something here that you didn't earn. In this life, you will have trouble. Life is full of hardships, obstacles to overcome. This is the professor saying to the student, some pain is going to happen. All of us know this. But that doesn't mean that every pain has to turn into suffering. What is suffering anyways? If pain is a, a signal of something gone wrong in the body or the heart, suffering is beyond that. Suffering is pain plus something else. Uh, one lighthearted example of suffering would be this. I've heard it's incredibly painful to be tackled by an NFL linebacker, and I believe it. But it's more than painful to be tackled by an NFL linebacker who causes you to fumble the ball at the goal line when you are about to score the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. The game is over, your season is over, you're at the end of your career. This was your one chance to win the Super Bowl, and you just fumbled it away. That is suffering. Any one of the ladies who wear high heels can tell you that is suffering. But the pain that they endure in wearing it might be worth it for a date with the husband that they love, but maybe not for some 
lazy guy who shows up late to the date and treats her wrong the whole night and doesn't even offer to pay. There's a difference between pain that we're willing to endure and pain that we aren't. Suffering is more than pain. It's pain plus the awareness of a threat. It's pain plus frustration and fretting. Suffering is the experience that we have in our pain. It's the story that we tell ourselves, our self-talk that explains what the pain means. It's when we say things like this, why me? I don't deserve this. I'll never be the same again. I won't ever get over this. I'll never play as well again as I did before my injury. My husband won't be attracted to me anymore now that I've had the surgery. My spring break is a total loss. I'll never feel safe after this. I'll never meet anyone like her again. In other words, suffering is largely an interpretive act. It tries to predict the future, and it always predicts despair in our future. But we have some choices. We have choices about what to accept and what uh, not to accept, what to resist. Now, by accept, I don't mean that we approve of the pain. We never approve of evil, but we do have an opportunity to accept. This is my lot. This is what I'm in right now. This is where I'm at. Here's a thought experiment about suffering and how between thought one and thought two is the opportunity for us to choose our self-talk, our narrative, our interpretation. Every parent with a kid learning to walk knows this moment when the kid is tottering along, he's kind of stumbling, using his hand to balance on the couch or a coffee table, and then he takes these steps out into the room all by himself. When the kid falls, the parent has a response. He, he can say to the child something like, Oh no, are you all right? which provides an opportunity for the child to think, well, maybe I'm not all right. Is there something dangerous here I didn't know about? <laughs> or the parent has an opportunity to say, all right, buddy, you're safe. Good landing. In which the kid feels a little bit of reassurance, maybe, that everything is going to be all right. We do this same thing all throughout our life as adults. We receive a call or some news of some kind. We uh, take a look at our bank statement. We find out that our small business is going to close down and everybody has to go home. The virus has stolen our future from us. It's literally taken away our opportunity to plan our spring breaks, to plan our graduation ceremonies, to plan our summer. We don't know how long it's going to last. And in this, we have this response, this, oh no, it's all burning down. Or safe. With God, we can land this plane. We are all going to be okay. See, the, the hope is that suffering can be limited because the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God can't be pointed at as if there it is or here it is. It's within you. It's in your midst. It's among you. This means that between people and even between people and God is this space, the thoughts that people live with, the choices they make to obey God, to honor God, to listen to God. 
to allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate in between thought one and thought two, where thought one says this hurts and thought two says all is lost. The Holy Spirit, like a penetrating oil, like WD-40, can work down through the rust and into the crevices and can loosen up some space for us to think and respond. Limits can be placed on suffering. We're going to look at Psalm 130 and see a couple of ways that the author of this psalm shows us that we can place limits on suffering. Uh, Observing it is where we begin. Look at verse 1 for just a second with me. When we observe our suffering, we say things like this, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Or verse 6, I'm waiting and watching. I'm waiting and watching. More than watchmen wait for the morning. These kind of phrases in this psalm confess, I am at rock bottom. Here I am, uh, I've hit the floor, but all is not lost. I'm watching and I'm waiting. I'm observing what will come next. In another place, a psalmist wrote these famous words about God knowing our whole life and us never being able to escape God's presence. It's in Psalm 139, verses 7, 8, 16, and 23, and 24. I want to read these right now. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Did you hear it? Out of the depths, I cry to you. If I am in the depths, the psalmist says in 139, you are there. What we find out when we observe and confess our situation, we say, God, I'm in the depths right now. This is a terrible situation. I hate this situation. I do not like it, but I will accept that this is where I'm at. We say to God, here I am. I'm going to pray it. I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch. You're already here in front of me. You saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And then we pray something like this, a prayer of waiting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, whoever or whatever got us in trouble that landed us here in the depths cannot separate us from God. This is why Paul in Romans 8 writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, uh, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth. Did you hear it? Rock bottom can't separate us from the love and the presence of God, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Observation means that we're putting our anguish in the open. We're saying to God, here I am, this is how bad it is. We're not hiding it away in embarrassment from God or from each other. We're not explaining it away with glib answers or smart answers. We're not giving excuses for it. But we're squarely and passionately setting our problem before God, proclaiming it, praying it, and waiting. So let's observe for a moment together. Right now in my life, where am I suffering? Where do I have pain plus the awareness of a threat that's causing me to fret, causing me to struggle, causing me a loss of sleep? It's true for all of us. It's true for me just last night, guys. There are so many things in the world for us to fret about. The question isn't whether we have it. It's where is it and can we observe it? What are the boundaries between where this hurts and my awareness of the threat? Where's that space between the thoughts? 
Where is the Spirit moving? Because where He is moving is this space between thought one and thought two where the opportunity lies. And then we have the chance to choose faithful action. So observation, choosing faithful action. Look at verse 1 again. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. This is a choice of faithful action. But there's also a choice of faithful inaction, of stillness. In verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. Inaction can be a perfectly beautiful response to our observation of suffering. Inaction means when in doubt, you don't move the injured person. I was a lifeguard for one year at the Bible camp I grew up at, and I went through the training at Harding so that I could go back and be a lifeguard. One of the most important lessons we learned was how to immobilize someone who has a spine or neck injury in the water so that you don't do greater damage by moving them in their pain and in their injury. All of you have probably seen on a uh, program, uh, football, or a soccer game where a person is injured from a collision and they'll bring out a board and they'll strap him down to it so that they can take them off the field and not aggravate the injury or make it any worse. This is faithful inaction to immobilize the place of pain before we choose something that will cause greater evil or greater pain. This is choosing what to accept and what to resist. Isaiah 30, verse 15, is another one of my favorite scriptures about waiting on God. In repentance and rest will be your salvation. In quietness and trust will be your strength. And then God says this most haunting thing, but you would have none of it. In repentance, rest, quietness, and trust uh, was your strength and salvation, but you would have none of it. The people of Israel choose instead to fight their own battle on their own terms. They choose to resist a power that they couldn't win against. They say our horses are fast enough, and God says they are not. By the time this battle is done, you will be defeated and separated from one another so that you're like a lonely flagpole on top of a hill, separated from all your companions, battered by the wind. The people had an opportunity to say in repentance and rest and quietness and trust, but they would not choose an action. They chose uh, an irresponsible action instead. Watchmen, watchmen don't have much to do. They watch, they wait. The key metaphor here in our Psalm 130 in verse 6 is, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. What does it mean to be a watchman? Watchmen comfort children or animals who are distressed. Watchmen can't rush the dawn. They can't reel in the sun. They can't make the earth turn faster. Watchmen trust that everything else going on in the building around them will continue, and not because they're watching out for it, but because they're watching for trouble. Watchmen wait. I served as a watchman once at Armstrong Lobby in the dormitory at Harding University. My brothers, Eric and Ethan, have both served as watchmen in different professional capacities. Ethan right now serves as a watchman at a museum in Portland where he lives. And and what we've learned and seen is this, is that it can be an incredibly boring wait. Your shift can be filled with monotony as you sit there with nothing to do. But the watchman also implicitly chooses to trust the rest of the system. Somebody owns the building. 
Somebody else cleans the building. Somebody else is renting out the rooms in the building, and other people are using those rooms, going about their life, cooking their food, sleeping, doing their work, waking up. The watchman is not in charge of all of these parts of the building, just watching the gate. And in the same way, we are sure of God running the world. All of these bits that we can't control are not our responsibility anyways, but to watch and to wait as God runs his world. And so to participate with him in limiting evil's power to burn us down. This is where we are choosing hope. This is where we choose what to accept. In his word, I put my hope, verse 5. And then verse 7 as an imperative. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Psalm 130 is soaked in God awareness. Hope equals pain plus the awareness of God. If suffering is pain plus threat, hope is pain plus the awareness of God. Hope is not doing nothing. It's not keeping up appearances. It's not bogus spirituality. It's not dreaming or fantasy or telling God when and how to fix things, which is to bully God. No, for us, sitting still with God is not laziness. It's not sloth or torpor. Instead, our sitting is defiant in regards to evil. It is faithful in God's action that if I act too quickly, I might cause further harm. I wait to see what God will do. I wait to see where God will lead. Hope is going about our tasks. Confident God will provide meanings and conclusions in life. Hope is alert expectation, a willingness to allow God to do things in his way in his time without bossing him around. And this might lead us to a, a question about all this pain and all this suffering in the world. Is God really running things? Why did Jesus come to suffer? Why did he have to do that? Why is there suffering anyways? It's an unanswerable question from our perspective. Many people have made the situation much worse by trying to give cheap and easy answers to a question like this. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Maybe the best thing we can say about it right now is this. Jesus suffered not so that we wouldn't but so that we could learn to suffer like he does. You see, again, Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. There's simply no escaping the fact that Jesus' death on the cross did not prevent us from suffering in life. We have diseases still, we have injuries still, we have heartache still. But have we learned with Jesus, are we learning with him in our sitting to suffer like he did? Remember at Gethsemane, the last night of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, before his three days in the tomb, before his resurrection to new life. Jesus goes to this garden where they prayed frequently, he and the disciples. And he takes Peter, James, and John aside and he says, watch and pray with me. And then he goes off by himself and he prays in anguish. Luke says he's in anguish in his spirit as he sweats something like drops of blood. He prays, God, if you would take this cup from me. In other words, take this moment, take this crucifixion, take this penalty, take this wrath that you're pouring out on sin and on evil. Take this from me. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. He comes back to the apostles. He sees them taking a nap and he says, 
Can't you stay up with me for even an hour? Watch and pray. Three times Jesus does this. He goes back to pray. He goes back to watch. He's a watchman in the night. And all he wants from Peter, James, and John, uh, incapable and broken and sleepy as they may be, is just to watch with me. Not to take action that you don't yet understand, but just to sit still and to wait for God to work. Jesus teaches us how to sit in our suffering. He proclaims it to God. He prays it and he waits. The big difference is not what Jesus suffers, but how he does it. The big difference is not what we people suffer, but how we do it like him. The the big redemption here is that suffering is never the last word. Evil never has the last swing. One day when God renews and restores all things, evil will be put in its place. Pain will be ended. The great promises of Scripture is that God will even wipe away the tears that remain from our eyes when He has put to death death and suffering and pain. And so the redemption is ultimate. It is the last word. Evil is already limited. It will not receive the last word. But in this life, we have an opportunity with Jesus to limit it even further, not to let it run our agendas, not to let it run our schedules, but to let God in on every moment. This is what stillness is all about. You see, the bottom, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, the bottom has a bottom. That's the great thing about being at the bottom. But the heights are limitless. Together today, we, we pray to God to give us insight into the space between the places that we hurt and the things that we fear and to help us to choose sitting with him. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. God who sees, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. Church, be blessed.